Now, do you guys notice a deodorant streak here? It looks like a shadow, not deodorant. It's a shadow, it's not deodorant streak, okay? So just know that. So I'll point it out that, hey, you got a deodorant streak there. And so I, I have never learned how to put on a shirt without getting that. It's the hardest thing in the world. And so then you try to like put on your shirt first and then put, you know, go up. But then you stretch out your shirt and I get it even worse sometimes. I don't, how, do you, how do you guys do it without? Someone teach me how to dress, okay? So I don't, because I, I just have, I never learned that trick. And clearly I'm very embarrassed about it too. I just, well, you know what? I'd rather have a deodorant streak than have being all right? So be happy when you see a deodorant streak. That means I don't stink. Whoever has a deodorant streak means they do not stink. All right. So we have been, uh, oh, one more thing. Gosh, we have something to add. You could sell the Brooklyn Bridge to anybody. Was that Jim? He's the ultimate salesman. <laughs> Guaranteed. <laughs> Should be on one of those infomercials or something. You know. uh, but on the back of your bulletin, you'll see these cultivate classes. Or they're, no, they're actually not all cultivate classes. But um, where there, we've been talking about throughout this whole series about uh, how there can be soul wounds that we get when core needs are not met or they're violated, and how that produces ugly stuff in our life. And all these classes are, are in one way or another, address those things. Uh, the revitalizing our relationships is particularly pertinent to the topic we're going to be talking about this morning, uh, which is for, for, uh, about forgiveness. But they're all uh, relevant to this. Dan's Demons is a class that, that we'll be meeting, and they all start September 12th. Um, Dan is a friend of mine. He's actually written a little book. Uh, he's writing a series of books along the lines of screw tape letters. Uh, where, and they're really, really clever. And he's a clever guy. So that's a great uh, class. Ultimate Journey, uh, Life on Purpose, as was sold to you by Jim. And uh, my book, Seeing is Believing. All those are resources that if you want to k- go deeper with this stuff and uh, get more healing, they're, they're, they're there to help. All right, now we're in a series uh, here and talking about um, uh, passages that some appeal to to argue that God is sometimes violent and God assumes that sometimes his people may be violent. Uh, they argue that Jesus qualified, or the New, the New Testament qualifies, uh, the teaching of Jesus that we're to love our enemies and bless those who persecute us and pray for those who despitefully use us and turn the other cheek and never retaliate and things of that sort. They're saying, well, generally that's true, but of course, sometimes there's, you're going to have to do that. And, and our, our view is that Jesus doesn't qualify that, and the New Testament doesn't qualify that. And so we've been engaging with these passages that challenge our position. Now, some people have argued that some of the parables of Jesus uh, include violent depictions of God. And that's what we're going to be dealing with here this morning. We're going to learn some stuff about parables. I, I actually wanted to also do a teaching on Revelation. Because a lot of people think that when Jesus comes back, he's going to have a bloodbath. And they, they find that in the book of Revelation. Um, and I'm just not going to have time to do that because it's going to take a little bit to unpack this parable that we're looking at this morning. Um, but I did a four-part series on Revelation um, oh, about two, three years ago, I guess it was. Uh, it's called Rescuing Revelation. And if you're one of those who have read Revelation in a way where you think Jesus is going to come back and slaughter people, I encourage you to listen to that uh, four-part series. But we're not going to be able to touch on that here, here today. So of, of the various parables that people think they, that depict a violent God, um, I'm only going to be able to look at one of them. But it's the hardest one, in my opinion. And um, the principles I'll be using to explain this challenging parable uh, are, can be applied to all parables. Uh, so we're going to look at the parable of the unforgiving servant. And the title of this message, by the way, is, is uh, The Urgency of Forgiveness. 
because it really is urgent. Uh, it's found in Matthew 18. So here's what we read. Matthew 18. Where is it? All right. So it says, then, then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Like, like up to seven times, maybe? Probably thinking he was kind of righteous for saying seven. Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Or that phrase can be translated seven times 70. Um, and it doesn't matter because everyone agrees that what Jesus is giving there is, is not like the upper limit of how much you should forgive. He's rather saying, forgive without limit. Just keep on forgiving. Always be ready to forgive. Um, now, Jesus is going to now tell this parable. But notice this. The parable that Jesus is going to tell, he's, he's doing it to illustrate the answer he just gave. He's, he's going to show why it's so important to always be willing to forgive. So just remember that. That's the point of this parable. All right? So then it says this. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. In the Greek, it's literally 10,000 talents. Now, a talent was, a single talent was a, a, a huge chunk of money. Uh, the average servant would, it would take them t about 20 years of labor to earn one talent. <laughs> and this guy owes, how many? 10,000. Do the math. That means he had a debt that was the equivalent of 200,000 years labor, if, I, if my math is right. It's, that's like a ridiculous amount. Um, and we'll get to why it's ridiculous here in, in, a, in a little bit. Then it says, since he was not able to pay, the, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Sell off the family into slavery uh, to, to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. He said, be patient with me, he begged, and I'll pay everything back. Which, of course, he, he just give me 200,000 years and I'll, I'll pay it back. He's not going to pay it back. But the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. And when that servant went out, he found out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe me. Now, the silver coin is a denarii, and that is about what a servant would earn in a day. So this guy owed him a uh, uh, hundred days labor. But the guy who just got forgiven 200,000 years worth of labor, uh, he's going to not only not delay, he's going to require that this guy pay up and he's choking him. Then his fellow servant fell on his knees and, and, and begged him, be patient with me and I'll pay you back. But this guy refused, even though he just was forgiven that incredible debt. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. And I, to this day, don't know how you pay off a debt while you're in prison. When the other servants saw what had happened, they, they were outraged. And they went and told their master everything that had happened. And then the master called the servant and said, You wicked servant! I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In his anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed while he's being tortured. This is how, this is how my Heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. So here's a question. Uh, is it the case that uh, if we don't forgive a person, 
God is going to revoke his forgiveness of all of our sins and make us pay in full by throwing us into prison to be tortured. And I'm thinking most people listening to this message right now are thinking, I hope not. Uh, and in fact, I don't think that's the point of this par- parable. But to understand why, we're going to have to understand something about parables. Now, parables are one of the most misunderstood genre of, of scripture uh, today because we don't, we, we don't use parables much today. Um, and so we, we really kind of misunderstand them. I have seen some truly bizarre conclusions that people have come to based on how they interpret a parable. And it's, it's really, really screwy. So we, we got a lot, this is going to take some unpacking here, but it'll be worth it. So a parable is a little bit like an analogy, which itself is an analogy. <laughs> um, a, a parable, in an analogy, you, you have like, you say X is like Y in certain respects. Right? X is like Y in certain respects. But to understand how X is like Y in certain respects, you also have to know how X is not like Y in other respects. Following? So it's like if I say to my wonderful wife, Honey, your love, your love to, to me is like, your love is, 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 a, is, a, is an ointment that heals my aching heart. I'm so romantic. Now, what I'm actually is going to say, Honey, Analogically speaking, your, your, your love is, is, is like an ointment uh, that, that heals my heart. But, so I'm saying you know, your love is like this. But of course, to understand that, you, she would have to know, and I'm sure she would, in what respects her love's not like an ointment. Like I never have to open a jar to get Shelly's love. And, and I, no one has to do heart surgery on me to get the heart out so I can put the ointment on the heart. So it's not like it in that respect, but it is like it in this other metaphorical thing. There's a like and a, and a not like quality to all analogies, and there's a, a like and a not like quality to all parables. And, and, and the key to understanding how it's like and how it's not like is to, is to say, what is the main point of the parable? What is the parable trying to compare? Right? What's the parable getting at? Um, you, you can distinguish between what are props and what are punchlines. What's the prop and what's the punchline in a parable? You think of a parable a little bit along the lines of a joke, right? We, we all get jokes. So here's a joke I found this week. Um, what did the zero say to the eight? Oh, you cheated. Okay, I was going to say, wait for it, wait for it. She already got it. Okay, the answer is, oh, they showed it. Nice belt. <laughs> all right, let's have a cute joke. Can you put it up there again? Because, okay, last service, I'm not kidding. I had several people come up and they didn't get it. One guy... About 10 minutes after this point in the sermon, starts laughing because he just got it. <laughs> I think his wife explained it to him. Uh, I don't want that happening. So, so can you put it up there so people can see? Put up the, uh, what did the zero say? Today? Yeah, see, if you look at an eight, it looks like a, a squeezed zero in the middle, right? So, ba-boom, ching. All right. Okay, so, it's a joke. It's a kid's joke. It's the best I could do. So, here's the thing. If someone were to say... Like right now, say, well, wait a minute, I don't get it, because numbers can't talk. Or, or uh, zeros don't wear belts, you can't put a belt around a zero. Or, how do you know that's a zero and not a capital O? Okay, you're get- <laughs> Did someone just die? <laughs> okay, you're, you're not getting it, you're missing the point of the joke. See, those are props. They're just that you got to just work with. You have to assume. You, 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 work with me here, you know? And, and you have to assume that, and then you'll get the punchline. 
which is absolutely hilarious. But if you're focused on, on questions like, well, can they talk or wear a belt? Well, you're just missing the point. That's how it is with, with parables. You have to be able to distinguish what's a prop and what's the main point. And the props are just there to drive you to the, to the main point, the punchline. But if you confuse that, you're going to come up with all sorts of screwy, screwy interpretations of, of parables. That happens a lot. So, for example, Jesus told this parable about this widow who wanted to get her case heard by this judge. But the judge was a jerk and didn't care about justice and didn't care about this lady. But this lady kept on pursuing him and knocking on the door and knocking on the door and knocking on the door. And finally the guy goes, hey, even though I don't care about justice and I don't care about this lady, I'm going to hear her case uh, just to get her off my back. That's a boy translation. Um, well, see, Jesus here is, and then Jesus says, so also you should pray with persistence, pray with faith. So the point here is, is not to say that God is like the judge, as though we got to just nag God to death, to death if you want to, you know, get anything. Hey, Dad, can I get it, can I get it, can I get it, you know? No, it's not like that. The point isn't to say what God is like. The point is to say that, uh, how, about how we're to pray. God's not like the widow, but we're, God's not like the judge, but we are to be like the widow, and be persistent like that. Or there's another strange parable that Jesus told one time, uh, Luke 16. It's about this steward who managed money for his boss. And uh, uh, he was kind of shady and playing fast and loose with that money. And he just wasn't a good steward. His boss found out about how reckless he was with the money. And then the steward found out about that the boss knew. So the guy knows he's going to get fired. So really quickly, he goes to all the clients that worked with his boss. And he says, how much do you owe my boss? And they'd say this much. He goes, I'll tell you what, I'm in a good mood. I'll cut it in half and we'll call it a day. And he did that with all of the clients. And the reason he was doing that is so that when he gets fired, he's got some place to stay. He's got some friends. These guys like him, right? Then Jesus says, so also, you know, the the children of the world sometimes are more shrewd than the the children of God. Uh, Have foresight like this guy. Think ahead like this guy. Use your money with, a, with, with an idea of what's, going to be, what's coming in the future. Now, Jesus isn't saying we should be dishonest like the steward. No, but he is saying we should have the kind of foresight and, and, and smarts like this guy. So you've got to know what is a prop and what's not a prop. What, what is it driving to? A lot of the props that Jesus uses in, in uh, parables um, are often, they're corrupt people. Uh, they're sometimes very, very cruel people. Often they're very powerful people. But they're all people that his audience are familiar with. Um, this helps Jesus' story get really concrete so people can relate to it and people can remember it. The, everyone in that audience would know about, about judges who were unjust and everybody would know about, about stewards who sometimes were, were, were corrupt. And, and to go to our, our, our uh, uh, parable, um, everyone would know that there are these nasty kings who can call in on a debt any moment. And they knew that if you can't pay that debt, that that, 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 that king has got uh, the authority to be able to sell off all your property and sell off your kids and sell off your wife into slavery and then throw you into prison and torture you if he wants to. They're all familiar with that. And they're all familiar with, 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 with peasants who, who had debts that they couldn't pay. So they could easily relate to these people. But Jesus isn't at all condoning the corruption or the, the, the cruelty of, of these powerful people. He's just drawing attention to them because... He's using them as props. They're not the point he's making. They're just the, the means by which he makes a point. Sometimes Jesus even exaggerates the, the cruelty and the corruption of, of folks. And sometimes he throws in other absurd things. Um, he does this to kind of shock his audience. Uh, he does it to help the audience remember what uh, he's teaching. Uh, some have argued that he does it kind of for entertainment. Uh, that, this, that Some of the stuff would be really funny. And so... 
there's no way that a real peasant could possibly rack up a debt uh, of, of, of 10,000 talents, the equivalent of 200,000 years labor. And there might have been a chuckle in the crowd when Jesus says that. Not as loud as the one I got when I told my great joke, but it would have been a chuckle. Uh, and, or, you know, there's, there's no way that the king could ever expect him to pay that back. Especially if he's going to throw him into prison and have him tortured for the next 200,000 years. Uh, but that's not the point. If you are worried about the absurd uh, features of the parable or the cruel people in the parable or the nasty people, that's like asking the question, uh, how can numbers talk? You're missing the point. They're just there. Don't draw anything out of that other than that, that they are there to illustrate or to move you towards the punchline uh, of the parable. Now, in our case, the, the punchline is really easy to discern. Uh, the purpose, the point that, 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 that is being made here is easy because it follows right on the heels of this discussion that, that Peter and Jesus are having. Jesus says you must always be willing to forgive. And then he tells a parable to illustrate why that is so important. That is the point of this parable. Done. It's, it's to make that point. The master-servant relationship is there as a prop to move to that point. But we're, we shouldn't draw out of the master's behavior, uh, any kind of inference about what God is like. Now, in this case, it can be tempting to, to do that because initially the master forgives the guy. And we're thinking, well, that's just like God. That, that is like us in that we were in a position of desperation where we couldn't pay a debt and it was forgiven. But be careful. To, don't use a prop for a punchline. He's a prop there. Um, because, look at if this is what God is like, consider this fact. Yeah, he forgives a whole lot. That's really great. Yay, what a wonderful guy. Then as soon as the guy goes out and he doesn't forgive somebody, now this master, this king, revokes his forgiveness and says, I want payment in full. Uh, he just cracks down on it. He, he cancels his, his, his canceled debt. Well, if you cancel your canceled debt, then you didn't cancel the debt. You don't get takebacks on this thing. If you forgive, you forgive. If you cancel, you cancel. So this guy was still actually holding the debt over this guy's head on condition that. Uh, and the guy didn't meet the conditions, so boom, he reenacts the whole thing. I don't think you want to say that God is like that. He's going to revoke your forgiveness, and then all of a sudden now it's all payback time. Is that, is that what God is like? Or, or if you think that this is what God is like. Um, oh, consider this. The point, the, the point of the parable is that we're supposed to forgive endlessly, Right? Always willing to forgive. That's the point of the parable. Isn't it a little weird to have in a parable about how we're to forgive without limit an illustration of God revoking his forgiveness with one offense? What, this is like the ultimate example of, of God. It would be God saying, do what, I, do what I say, not what I do. And I don't think God does that. I, I, I don't forgive, but, but you have to. In fact, everything Jesus tells us to do, all of his kingdom instruction, it's all... All that behavior is based on the character of God. We are to be a certain way because God is a certain way. And our job is to reflect the character of God. So when Jesus says, love your enemies and bless those who persecute you and pray for those who despitefully use you and turn the other cheek and never retaliate and always forgive, he says that because that's the way God is. And that's why Jesus concludes that, that teaching in Matthew 5 by saying, there you, that's how you, they will know that you are the children of God. Do this so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. This reflects the character of the Father in heaven. And so if we're to reflect the character of the Father in heaven, and this master is, a, is, a, is, is meant to illustrate what God is like, well, then we should throw people to prison for wronging us for the first time. We should never, we, we have take-backs on our forgiveness. We, we, we don't want to act like this 
And that's a good thing because God is not like this. Or one final thing is, if you think the master is there to illustrate what God is like, and that's how this parable is very, very frequently interpreted. Because how would you explain a passage like this? To give one example, Colossians chapter 2. What does Colossians 2 say? It says this. When you were dead in your sins, notice there we weren't wounded, we weren't a little ill, sick, nauseous with our sins. We were dead. And in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ, praise God. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, a laughingstock of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That, folks, is a powerful verse. So when Jesus died, uh, all of our sins were forgiven. When Jesus died, uh, the debt, the, the debt that, that the enemy held over us, of all the sin we'd ever committed, it was nailed to the cross. Uh, and so when Jesus died, he disarmed the principalities and powers, who always are the ones doing the accusing, not God. Uh, it's, it's the powers. But they have now been made a laughingstock. They were the ones who were at work to get Jesus crucified, and it all backfires on him. God outwitted them in his wisdom. So when Jesus died, uh, the, the sin... Our slate was, slate was wiped clean. When, when Jesus died, sin was put to death. When Jesus died, it was nailed to the cross. When Jesus died, uh, everything that stood against us, every sin we've ever committed, every lustful thought you've ever had, every curse you've ever cursed, every person you've ever wronged, you name it, all that you've ever done, ever will do, it was obliterated, it was annihilated, it was dead, it was killed, buried. Uh, it was cast as far as the east is from the west, praise God. And, and see, God, unlike this hypocritical uh, master here who, who, who you know, reverses his mind on this, God doesn't play double jeopardy with his children. God doesn't do take-backs. God is not a liar. God is not duplicitous. God is not hypocritical. God is not fickle. When God says you're forgiven, you're forgiven. When God says uh, your sin is dead, it's dead. When God says you're clean and accepted, you're clean and accepted, praise God. And so, so God is not like this master. I hope we can see that. that, that this is not intended to show what, the, the, what God is like. And what it shows, the point is not that the master is like what God is like. Rather, it's that we are like the servant when we don't forgive. And the point is that there are dire consequences if we refuse to forgive. In light of all that we have been forgiven, we were dead in sin. But if we are not willing to turn around and forgive others, well, we're on a dangerous course. There are, there are disastrous consequences for that. Um, and so it's forgiveness is, is a matter of urgency. But here's the thing. Someone is probably here and they're thinking to themselves, well, wait a minute. Um, it, 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 the last verse of that parable says that God will throw us into prison, right there. My Bible says God will throw us into prison and will, to be tortured. So it seems like that is the punchline. What do you think? Okay, uh, let's dig a little deeper. Okay, I, I told you it's going to take a little unpacking. Uh, here's the thing. Make a distinction between prop and punchline. The master-servant relationship is part of the, is a prop, Right? And that master-servant relationship, I want you to see this, that's a legal relationship. The, the, the king has the legal authority to call in this debt and sell off that guy's property and sell off his wife and children and throw him into prison. He's got legal authority to do that. And, and, and because that's a, a, a legal paradigm, 
uh, that the, the disastrous consequences that follow from unforgiveness are expressed in a legal framework. The legal framework, in other words, is part of the prop, not the punchline. The punchline is there's disastrous consequences, but the particular way it's framed in a legal way, that's part, that, that's part of the prop. Are you, are you following that? On the cross and throughout Scripture, what we find is that when God brings judgment on people, he does it in an organic way, not a legal way. And here's the difference between those two things. If you steal a car and get thrown in a prison, that's a legal judgment. It's a legal judgment because there's no intrinsic relationship between your behavior and the consequence. It's a legal judgment because, because a, a legal authority had to impose that on you. It came from the outside. That's a legal judgment. An organic judgment's more like this. If you get liver disease because you've been drinking like a sieve for the last 40 years, well, that's an organic judgment. Uh, there's a relationship between nonstop drinking of alcohol for 40 years and having a diseased liver. Uh, it, it, the punishment's sort of built into the behavior itself. It's a natural consequence of it. That's an, that's an organic kind of judgment. Uh, no one has to impose it on you. You have imposed it on yourself. You bring it on yourself. And this is the biblical view of sin. Throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New, sin is inherently self-destructive, which is exactly why God hates it. Uh, God's, God, God hates it because it, it harms us and he loves us. So God's not some lawyer up in heaven, some anal lawyer up in heaven who's just, his cork gets unpopped because someone breaks one of his rules. These people are breaking my rules, like, like his authority is being threatened or something. He doesn't have those kind of ego needs. Uh, rather, God is our Heavenly Father, and, and, and it grieves him when he sees that we embrace stuff that, 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 that is harmful to us, um, and we head down this road of destruction. Um, and he hates the sin because he loves us. But that's, that's still a judgment of God, because God is the one who set up the world in such a way that this kind of behavior leads to uh, this kind of consequence. It's a judgment of God, but it's not a judgment that God imposes. This, by the way, is why, and so many, very few people get this, but it's an important point to get. This is why you can experience judgments from God even though all your sin is forgiven. Follow this. I know it sounds weird to people, but the sin is forgiven. That's not an issue. Paul, 2 Corinthians 5, on top of what we just read. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says that uh, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sin against them. That's what the cross does. It takes sin off the table. But you can still experience the destructive consequences of sin if you persist in it. And that still is a judgment of God because God set up the world such that that behavior leads to that kind of consequence. So, yeah, for, it's all forgiven, but that doesn't mean there aren't consequences to our behavior. This, this, this is how God always judges. Um, and God will, will, he stays in there in his mercy to protect people from the consequences of their, their, their sin because he hates to see us suffer. Uh, he stays in there in his mercy, but whatever we do, we get better at doing. And if you're resisting God, you'll get better at resisting God. And you can get to the point where God sees that all he's doing with his mercy is enabling you to get further and further entrenched in your sin. And his mercy is actually harming you. And at that point, God has no choice but to withdraw his mercy and say, I got to let you go down the road you're going. And he does that out of love because even there, he's, he's hoping that we'll learn the hard way what we couldn't learn by his mercy. Uh, but uh, and it grieves him to do it, but that is the judgment of God. Uh, it, it's, it's, uh, we, we, we bring judgment on ourselves. This is what happens with Jesus on the cross when he stands in our place as a judge sinner. Um, the father isn't angry with Jesus. He's angry at sin. His wrath is towards sin, but it's not towards Jesus. 
And, and he never acts violently towards Jesus. He never imposes a judgment on Jesus. The only thing that God does, according to the New Testament, is he gave Jesus over. He delivered Jesus over to wicked human beings uh, who were operating under the influence of principalities and powers. And all the violence that happened to Jesus was their doing, not God's. God delivered him over. And so that's the paradigm we should have for, for, for all divine judgments. And you find this same thing throughout the Bible. I have about 60 pages worth of examples of this in Crucifixion of the Warrior God. But I'll just give one uh, for, for, for this morning. It's a classic one. In Romans, Paul says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the, godless, uh, all, against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, if you have a Thor or Zeus picture of God, you're probably picturing God with a thunderbolt right now. But read on. Now, Paul will make clear what this wrath is. What is this wrath? The Romans here were suppressing the knowledge of God and were worshiping the creature more than the creator. They became idolaters. And so it says this, that God then gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. And then two verses later, God gave them over to shameful us. And then two verses later, God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. God gave them over. That's God's wrath. With a grieving heart. Behind every wrath portrait of God, you should see a grieving father. God grievingly lets them go. I got to let you go. And now they just go down that path of self-destruction that they've chosen for themselves. Now notice that if God gave them over, let them go, that means God up to this point had been holding on to them. In his mercy, he, 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 he was working in his spirit to try to get them to turn, to, to, to learn the easy way, to learn to, that God's way is the best way without having to learn that through the pain you're going to suffer. But here, they must have come to a point where God's mercy was simply harming them further, so God says, i got to let you go. He gives them over. That's how God brings about judgment throughout the Bible. He doesn't impose it in a legal way. He lets it unflow organically. And, and but here's the thing. Showing the organic nature of God's judgment wasn't part of the point of this parable. But showing how sin leads to disastrous consequences was the point of this parable. And since the prop that he's using is this legal master-servant relationship, the consequences are expressed in a legal framework way. But that's part of the prop, not part of the punchline. So folks, there is disastrous consequences that can happen when we refuse to forgive. But it's not that God is going to literally throw us into a prison to be tortured. But what God will do, what the cross teaches us and what the rest of Scripture teaches us, is that God will, with a grieving heart, let you put yourself in prison. He'll let you go. And, and, and he'll, he'll let you invite torments on yourself. Uh, he'll let you experience the self-destructive nature of the thing that you've chosen. So I think, I, I hope we can see here that it's misguided to try to use this parable to argue that God, in any literal way, acts violently and that it constitutes an exception to Jesus' otherwise nonviolent picture of God. I also hope that we can internalize the message of this parable because it's so important. We should take it on God's authority that, that, that unforgiveness is a cancer that leads to death. But there's actually a lot, in the last three decades, there's been increasingly mounting evidence, scientific evidence, that confirms the truth of this. Uh, it's, it's fascinating to read. Um, 
Here's an here's a excerpt from a journal. Uh, it's, it's the John Hopkins Medicine Journal. And, it's, and they say this. And these, these aren't Christians. These are just regular, some of them may be Christians. But it's written just from a doctor point of view, a scientific point of view. Holding on to anger puts you in a fight or flight mode, which results in numerous changes in your heart rate, blood pressure, and immune response. Those changes then increase the risk of depression and heart disease and diabetes, among other conditions. I've read other articles where it says how it harms your self-esteem. Uh, some of us have, have evidence that it harms your sexual vitality. Uh, it, it, it harms all your relationships. You can't contain it. You think you're just unforgiving over here and will be just loving everywhere else. But it pollutes everything. It pollutes everything. And there's even some evidence that, that uh, your, your kids are affected by this. Uh, and they're not even sure why, but it's like the negative energy you're carrying around, it's, it's, it's contagious. It wears off on, 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 on your kids. And so it, it's just... We bring sickness on ourselves when we refuse to forgive. Uh, we are empowering another person to just be pouring, the, the, the offending person, we're empowering them to just pollute our lives with this nasty, demonic stuff. And, and the, what's really diabolical about resentment is that it can make you feel powerful. Like, you feel like, you're, you're like, I'm never going to speak to them again. I'm never going you know, to be nasty to them the rest of their life. And you think you're being powerful. But actually, it's the opposite. You are investing them to be Lord of your life in this area. They're defining you. Whoever defines you is your Lord. And you're saying, oh yeah, you can define, you get to determine my temperament and affect my blood pressure and my sexual vitality and my relationship with my kids and everything else. I'm empowering you to do that to me. Do you really want to be doing that? Uh, it, it's... it's uh, so it said that, 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 that unforgiveness or resentment, it's, it's, like, it's like drinking poison and thinking your enemy's going to die. <laughs> you, just, you feel like you're powerful, but in fact, you're killing yourself. You're killing yourself. So, so unforgiveness is intrinsically unhealthy. It's self-destructive. And that's what this parable is, is getting at. On the other hand, forgiveness is intrinsically, naturally healthy. There's been all sorts of studies that have shown this as well. Here's, here's a quote from uh, our own Mayo Clinic. Letting go of grudges and bitterness can make way for happiness, health, and peace. Forgiveness can lead to healthier relationships, greater spiritual and psychological well-being, less anxiety, stress, and hostility, lower blood pressure, fewer symptoms of depression, stronger immune system, improved heart health, higher self-esteem. And you can throw in sexual vitality on there as well. Uh, it, it's... It, it's it is putting you in the right direction. We're not wired to, to be um, hanging on to unforgiveness. And so it's a matter, literally a matter of urgency that we live life with a clean slate, without resentment, without grudges, uh, that, we, that we stay clear of that. Now, how do we forgive? I'll end with this. How, how do we forgive? Well, I'll kind of end with this. I'm kind of, this is my pre-end end. Um, like everything else in the kingdom, our power to forgive is rooted in our identity in Christ. Uh, as we've said throughout this series, we all have a God-shaped vacuum in our heart, in our soul, uh, that hungers for God. It hungers for the life that God wants to pour into us. And we've expressed that as, as core needs that we have. Everybody needs to have a sense of that they're worthwhile, that they matter, that they're significant, that they're their own person, uh, that, that they're loved, uh, that, and, and, and to feel secure in that. Those are core foundational needs that everyone has. And we have those because God wants to fill those needs. And, and he does it by means of, of the cross, showing his love for us on, on the cross. But so those needs aren't going to go away. Now, if those needs aren't met, and, and in fact, if those needs are violated, well, what we've seen is that now people are going to go to other sources to try to get that need met. 
And all of the crap in our life is the result of that. Ultimately, all the crap in our life is the result of idolatry because we're going to people and things and achievements and whatnot trying to get what God wants to give us for free. So we're treating those things like God. Uh, but all of it comes uh, uh, as a result of that. All of our hostile thoughts, our, our anger, our bitterness, hostility, all of that is a result of, of uh, operating out of this woundedness. So what needs to happen is we need to, to go back to our source over and over and over again. Make it a part of your mindset, your daily regime where you're always getting your life, your worth, your significance from Jesus Christ whose love for you was demonstrated on the cross. But the way it looks like without forgiveness is this. We saw last week that everybody has this, this need for justice, a need to be treated fairly, a need to, uh, to, to be treated according to your worth. And we all have, uh, if you're not, unless you're too damaged, but we all have a sense on some level that we have unsurpassable worth. We're created with that. And that can get damaged along the way, but, but it's there. And so what happens is when you're treated in ways that don't reflect your worth, Maybe treated in ways that, re, that communicate that you're worth less. Well, the gulf between what you know you deserved and what you got, that creates a sense of you owe me. It creates a debt. I'm worth this and you only, you, you did this. And so there's this idea of like, you owe me. And it, it's, it gets expressed as anger and resentment. You owe me. And as long as we, we, we hang on to that, because it's a way of saying, I'm worth more than the way you treated me. And we're like, I want that worth back. Like, you stole it from me. You owe me. On one level, there's, a, there's actually a kind of health to this. Because the truth is that you did deserve better than that. If you lose that, you're in real trouble because now you think you actually deserve to be trampled on all the time. So it's good that you're angry. That, that's fine. But, but, but it's not good if you live in that. Paul says this in Ephesians 4. He says, be angry, but don't sin. Be angry, but, but don't sin in your anger. Okay, you get angry. We get angry whenever something we value is devalued. And that applies to us, most of all. We're, we're valuable, and when we're devalued, it should make you angry. But don't go to bed with that. Don't, don't, don't swallow it and internalize it. Because there, he says, you're giving the devil a foothold, a stronghold. Uh, on top of all the natural negative consequences that come from unforgiveness, now we're inviting the enemy to come in and intensify all of that. How urgent it is that we have a clean slate on this whole thing. Um, that, 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 we, that, that we let go. And see, if we, if we go to Christ to get all of our worth met, see, if your worth is in Christ, um, then you don't need to be going around as a debt collector. You owe me. You owe me. No, you know what? You're infinitely rich. You don't need to, to get it from anybody else. When your worth is in Christ, it frees you to be able to let go. Because, uh, see, when your worth is in Christ, being treated good is, is still good, but it doesn't add to your worth. And being treated bad is still bad, but it doesn't take away from your worth. Because when your worth is in Christ, that worth is secure. It's locked and sealed. Uh, it's indestructible. It's imperishable. It's unassailable. It's unsurpassable. It's unimprovable. You can't add to it. You can't take away from it. When your worth is in Christ, see, now, now, now you can live out of a fullness rather than this emptiness trying to get. A fullness, a dance. Life was meant to be lived as a dance of celebration instead of this desperate striving, striving for desperation. Uh, When your life is in Christ, now you're free to to forgive without limit, and you're free to love without conditions. You're you're free to dance with abandon. You're free to die without worrying. You know, when when your worth is in Christ, when your identity is secure in Christ, now you're in a position where you can live life like God wanted you to live, like like you're supposed to be living life, and that's that's as a a reflection of his glory and of his freedom and of, of his joy. Everything hangs upon our getting our worth and significance and life found in Jesus Christ. It empowers us to let go of everything that needs to be let go of. 
and uh, you are then free. And whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Amen? Amen. Amen. That is freedom. That is freedom. Everything you really need, you've already got, and it can't be taken away. It can't be tainted. It can't be destroyed. It's there. It's on Calvary. Get all your word from him. Regularly go back and be drinking deeply from that. Okay, so we thought that it would be appropriate to end this series. The series is called Turning Over Tables. And we thought it would be appropriate, as we're talking about identity in Christ, to end with a song uh, that is called Turning Over Tables. We're going to listen to this, and we're going to watch a video alongside of it. I'd like to ask the worship team to come up here uh, to uh, play this closing song. And what it's about, it's really what I've been saying here, what we've been saying throughout this series, is that when we invite the love of God that's revealed on Calvary deep into our heart, and invite him into the dark places and invite him into those wounds, uh, when we invite that love in, he turns over tables, right? He, he's the game changer. He changes everything. He, he heals the wounds. Uh, he, he breaks the chains. He sets the captives free. Well, only the love of God can do that, but the love of God will certainly do that if we'll simply be always letting him in. When, when we let that love in, he tears down walls. It affects our relationships with others. It affects how we listen to people, how we treat people, how we respond to people, uh, how, how, how we respond when people misuse us. Uh, it, it sets us free to be living in conformity with the image of Jesus Christ. It sets us free to be the people that God calls us to be, turning over tables. And as, as you listen to this song and watch this video, apply it to your life however God wants to apply it to your life. But I'm particularly interested in those for whom this message this morning really landed on you. Uh, and ask the question, who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to forgive? You know, whatever, whatever they did, and I know it could be terrible. It could be absolutely unthinkable, maybe unspeakable. But it's a denarii crime, not a talent crime. You've been forgiven 200,000 years worth of labor, more than that, actually. You've been forgiven an infinite debt. Um, in light of that, let that love that was expressed by that forgiveness empower you to let go of this comparatively small debt. Just let it go. Why would you empower that person one moment longer to be polluting your life. Why? Well, he's given you the kingdom. Don't let this Yahoo be peeing on it and spitting on it and desecrating it. Now, let him go. Just let him go. That's all forgiveness is. It's just, I release you of that debt. And then it's a commitment that whenever you find hostile thoughts coming up and, and, and coming back at you, because they'll come back, but you just set those aside and you bless them. You bless them out of your identity in Christ. Bless them. Because blessing the person, as hard as that may be at first, but it's the only way to stay above that demonic undertow of the evil that they did. It, it, it's, it's more for your sake than for their sake. Bless them. Stay above that. So this is about identity in Christ. And as we do this, let's be anchoring our identity in Christ and celebrating the way it turns over tables in our lives. Well done. Good, good. Would you stand? Be secure in your identity in Christ. Amen. I'd like to ask the prayer team to come up here. Uh, they'll be by the stairs. And if you're here this morning and have any need, uh, whether it's about an issue that we talked about this morning or something totally unrelated, I encourage you to come forward and pray with these folks. They'd love to minister to you. And if you're here this morning and are not a surrendered disciple of Jesus, I would encourage you to seriously consider that. And if you want to talk about it, these folks would love to talk to you about it and explain what that is all about. As we leave here, can we do it as the people who are committed to keeping a clean slate, right? Keep no accounts. Just, just let this be releasing. Always. How often should you forgive? Always. If you agree with that, say amen and go out and love your neighbors. And God bless you guys.